0: Welcome to Reading with Joy. This summer, we're reading Piranesi by Susanna Clarke, a book about a man who lives in a house that loves him. So get yourself a cup of tea, sit down, and let's begin. My last thought before I fell asleep was, he is dead, my only friend, my only enemy. Hello everyone, and welcome back to Reading with Joy, where we are reading uh, Piranesi by Susanna Clark and this is our penultimate episode. We are to the second to last chapter, The Wave. And it's been such a joy and such a journey to go through this book with you all and to read your comments on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. I've loved seeing the elaborate conspiracy theories, your beautiful commentary on the themes of the book and most of all, your concern for Piranesi. So I'm so excited to dive into this week's chapter with two co-conspirators over at Plough. We are all um, writers, contributors, editors together. So I'm so excited to introduce uh, Leah Labresco Sargent and Katrin Kuyper. Uh, Welcome to the show, both of you. Thank you, glad to be here.
1: Thanks for having us on.
0: Um, So why don't you both begin by giving a little introduction to who you are and what you do and then also how you first encountered Piranesi and what your kind of first impression of it was.
1: Oh man, so I had pre-ordered it from the moment there was a link um, because I'd read Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell and I loved it and it's a very different book in a number of ways but what seems the same to me is that Susanna Clarke has this incredible talent of making a huge, rich world, one that you feel like you could wander off in if you got into the book unsupervised. is more of a possibility here for Piranesi. <laughs> and Piranesi is so much a smaller book, but it has that sense of expansiveness and lived inness that I loved in Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. So I loved it, and then I had my husband read it, and then I got it for my brother and his mom and my husband's brother and then his brother read it to his girlfriend and his roommate just like as a sampler but they told him don't stop so he read about half of it in one go until his voice ran out and then they'd take a break and then finish the whole thing together later so I'm pretty much a vector for Piranesi.
0: (laughs) That's excellent Um, I've said this before but it's amazing how this book Manages to create evangelists for it. So a lot of times when one person loves it, then it ends up getting into 10 or 12 different people's hands. Uh, Amazon thought that I had like, like I had a virus or something because I ordered so many copies of Piranesi when I was doing the giveaway. And then I ordered it for several friends and it was like, has someone taken over your account? Did you mean to order, you know, 27 copies of Piranesi? And I was like, yes, I did um so fun to hear that somebody else is also doing that also it's fun to hear other people had the experience of reading it out loud because that's how joel and i first read it and um and so this is actually my first time fully through the book uh with with eyes rather than ears as the experience so how about you katrin how is what was your what was your entryway into piranesi was it me It was
2: you, Joy. I um, was editing for Plow and you pitched me piece about it. um, And I don't feel the need to read all the books uh, for all the reviews that I published, but I was sufficiently intrigued that I uh, downloaded it from Audible. And 24 hours later, I was a changed person. Um, And so I too started giving it to everyone I knew, including my brother who, as it turned out, was also giving it to everyone. He knew, including me. So we both gave each other Piranesi
0: for Christmas. Oh, that's fun. Also, we all have the common denominator of um, brothers in this Piranesi experience and uh, in, in the Evangelion Piranesi. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah, so I think anyone listening, if you haven't already gotten Piranesi for your brother, you know your duty now. And if you don't have mm-hmm. a brother, you know, acquire one and then go get him Piranesi. <laughs>
0: Yeah, for your biological, adopted, or spiritual brothers, um, Piranesi is a must. Um, Also, I guess I didn't explain this in full, but uh, for anyone who's listening, one of the many hats I wear is as a contributing editor over at Plow, which is an incredible magazine that thinks through kind of the possibilities of a different life. Um, And we are all all work over there together, so that's why Katrin... uh, had my piece. She's an amazing editor, and um, that was really kind of my entryway into becoming obsessed with Piranesi was trying to get my head around what it was that moved me so much about the book, and getting to write about that and have um, have you kind of help me through that was, was really so encouraging and helpful. Um, so I want to begin today, as I always do, by kind of giving a bit of an overview of the chapter, and then we all have uh, various perspectives things to notice and I think you particularly Catherine have some um, some theories and I do as well so I can't wait to share those um, so this chapter comes at the end of last week we had kind of an apocalypse an unveiling um, where we journeyed back into Matthew Rose Sorensen's memory to when he first um, entered into the house when he was tricked by sales, Lawrence on sales and, um, and entered into the house. And so at the beginning of this chapter, he has this overwhelming realization that the other is not his friend. And, you know, it's funny. It, in some ways it sounds almost like a little, a little child, you know, when you kind of get to that phase and development where you are kind of able to conceive of people being for you or against you. Um, and, and that's almost, you almost feel like he has this kind of childlikeness to rejecting um, the other. And, and also, it's this really significant moment for for Piranesi, for Matthew O. Sorensen. I'm going to call him Piranesi because even though we know that he's Matthew O. Sorensen, something that comes out in this section is that it's kind of this idea that Matthew Sorensen awakes and he weeps and he's full of fury and rage and a desire to revenge. And then Piranesi says... Um, I will take care of you. Go to sleep. And Matthew O. Sorensen kind of falls asleep within him. And of course, this is definitely this kind of experience of disassociation. So I'm going to keep calling him Piranesi for now, because I think that's still um, what he's kind of in a transition into a, a third identity. So anger makes him resourceful. Um, and, uh, and I have some thoughts about that in a little while. But anyway, he then realizes that in the midst of all this, that 16 is in danger because 16 being this other person who's come to find him because the great flood is coming and he knows the other will try to keep her from, from, um, from being safe. And so he goes to great lengths to save her. Uh, he and 16 are saved. The other dies because he's ignorant of the, the house and because he's desperately trying to kill them, uh, with a gun. So he's smashed up against the wall, um, unable to get into his boat. Um, after this huge flood has, has ended and he and Sixteen are safe, um, they begin to kind of share their information. He learns how Sixteen found him. We learn that Sixteen's name is Sarah Raphael. Um, and then she says she's going to come back uh, for him and because he doesn't want to leave with her yet. And um, while she's gone, he, he finds the other's body, finds um, Ketterly's body and uh and tends to it and honors it uh, because even though he had all this anger in him and even though this is this great kind of break with the his normal loving posture even in the end even this enemy he still has this this honor um and love towards him um and then and then there's this beautiful scene where Piranesi is guided through the halls by Raphael or Piranesi guides Sarah Raphael through the halls and ultimately decides to travel back because he does not want to be alone. So that was a, lo- a rather elaborate um, kind of uh, summary, but uh, it's such a it's such a dense chapter that it feels important to kind of make sure we get most of the big points. So I know that today there are things I want to talk about. Um, I want to focus our conversation on kind of thinking about the significant characters and their relationships to each other. But before we get into that, are there any big kind of things that stuck out to you in this chapter that seemed important uh, before we dive into thinking about the three characters?
1: I'll say one thing that stuck out to me, we get different, different views of the house. It's one of the most dangerous times we've seen the house. And one thing that I'm still not sure about is that the boat, that kind of, seems alternately helpful and mocking to the mm-hmm. other. I don't. I don't really feel like I understand the boat's true character in it being Piranesi. I assume the boat has one, right? Yeah. You know, so, mm-hmm. that's a kind of little mystery about the, the temperament of the house and the things in it for me.
0: Mm, yeah, and to what extent uh, maybe the boat is, is Pyrenees just kind of projecting his own ambivalence onto the boat or does the boat in fact have some kind of character or relationship in the rest of the world? Uh, how about you? Did you, Catherine, did you have, did you see anything that you wanted to note anything that seemed interesting to you or important before we dive into our discussion?
2: Well, um, the line that you opened with is my favorite line in the whole book, but I don't think it's a good place to start. So let's just be sure to get back to it
0: later. Good. All right. Well, I think what I'll do then is I wanted to talk about um, the kind of characters that come up in this and the ways in which their arcs are resolved or something about them is revealed. I've talked about how every other chapter in this book is named after a character. So it opens, you know, with Piranesi and then we have the other and we have the prophet and um and this this chapter is of course called the wave and which implies to us that the wave is itself a character so i want to know uh, if we do think that the wave is clearly a character what do you all think what do you think this character is like what does it reveal to us about the house
1: Well, there's as always with the house, there are moments of beauty no matter what is going on. You know, this Mm -hmm. is a destructive moment, Um, but there is a moment where there's just a a spray of water from the clashing waves, Mm -hmm. and Piranesi describes it as diamonds in the air Mm -hmm. and draws Raphael's attention to it because it's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think we have that tension between kind of the house as a living system. Mm where for the house, a flood is not a disaster, right? It's part of what being the house is. And the difficulty comes with what being a human is who's in the Mm -hmm. house uh, for whom the flood is dangerous. But I think the flood isn't in itself kind of dangerous or angry. There are moments where it feels exuberant.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I think it makes me think of those beautiful passages in Job Where God says, where were you when I, you know, he names all these incredible natural disasters, some of which are disasters to humans, but it's really just the universe being beautiful and being beyond us. And it reminds me of the notion of the sublime, you know, that you get kind of in the, the 19th century and in romanticism, that there's something that's both terrible and beautiful but it's not terrible because it's evil. It's terrible because it's awe-inspiring, because it's beyond our own kind of capacity to control or to define. And, and so when we encounter it, it's like encountering the divine because it's something that is so beyond us that we can only stand in awe of it. And I think the thing that's different to me about Paranesi to the other is that he understands this and responds to that kind of, he responds to these things not as though they're evil or disasters, but just as though they are a part of the house. Whereas the other is just kind of out of tune with it. And so ultimately becomes a disaster to him. Um, What you had your, you have some thoughts about the wave Katrin, would you like to share them?
2: I do. Well, so one thing that stands out to me about the wave is that it brings about the resolution of a conflict that was set up in the other world. Um, Mm. The storm at the beginning of the Tempest. So Mm. the island uh, that Prospero and Miranda have been living on um, is in many ways very much like uh, this magical house um, that Paranese is part of. There are almost no people. um, And they they fled there after something terrible happened somewhere else um, in the real world. Mm -hmm. And uh, a common theme in Shakespeare is um, to go off to some new uh, magical place, uh, regroup, um, learn new things, but then ultimately um, you have to go back to your real life, uh, armed with uh, who you now are and what you now know. Um, and and that's what uh, piranesi does um, ultimately at the end of this chapter as well. He has to be mm. behind his magical island. Um, mm. And the, the betrayal that he experienced that um, ejected him from the world is now, um, the other is dead and, and that's uh, the resolution that receives. And so the wave brings that about in the Tempest, Prospero creates uh, the storm to bring all of these people um, to his island so he can uh, set his plans in motion and um, mm-hmm. achieve some resolution that way. Um, the, another thing that hangs behind uh, both of these for me is the flood. Genesis, um, which is mm. proposed as a way to wash clean the wickedness of the world. God grows tired of the wickedness, and um, and that's what he decides to do. And if you think about it, um, it actually does not work on those terms. Um, within mm. a single generation of disembarking, the survivors are all up to their old tricks. Um, and in right. fact... The, you know, the vast majority of all the wickedness that will ever happen in the Bible and in human history is all ahead of that event. So Mm. um, it actually does not work out, but God decides uh, not to do it again. You can't just keep um, wiping everything out and starting over. um, And you have to have, um, you have to have some other solution to the problem wickedness and sin and um, that's something that I think uh, Piranesi and Raphael are both struggling to understand um, as they get Mm -hmm. to know each other throughout the remainder of the chapter.
0: Yeah I think that's such a good point um, thinking about the fact that if you think about this flood as you said as kind of a resolution to betrayal like the Genesis flood like the flood and the tempest there's a sense in which it is both a resolution but also like you said not a resolution because you get to the end of this and while a storyline has resolved there's still this sense of emerging back into a world that you now know is broken and that's what we fundamentally feel for Piranesi um for Matthew for the beloved child of the house is that just for now
1: oh sorry go ahead yeah oh I was gonna say not just for Piranesi right because Raphael you know, has these moments of shifting back and forth between being so moved by the beauty of the house, you know, just as mm. you know, Pierre has always longed to share it with someone and thinking mm. of it as paradise, and then remembering, since she's a police officer, that crimes were in fact committed here. You know, that the bodies he tends to very faithfully are at least some of them the victims of murder. And mm. I think there's something very moving that in a sense his degree of care for them almost eclipses, you know, mm-hmm. that they've been Violated in other ways, because mm. when you see them being treated so tenderly, it's easy to forget that isn't how they've always been t- treated. But mm. you know that really comes home to Raphael and disturbs her, and I think not only you know kind of shakes her sense of the house, but her sense of could there be any place that is mm. safe and beautiful and only beautiful and not having any wickedness in it.
2: Mm. Yeah. And this yeah, characteristic I think- of Piranesi's is like, to me, it's really the most, the single most distinguishing characteristic, um, of this whole book. It's, you know, it's hard to put your finger on, but just his, just beautiful purity of heart, um, that seems to elevate everything he, um, comes in contact with. Um, and then is just born of his way of seeing the world. Um, which also to me is, you know, has a strong parallel with uh, Miranda and the Tempest who has grown up uh, without almost any human company. And this Mm. kind of largely accounts for her, her innocence. Um, And she like Piranesi is just desperately fascinated by the idea of other people. Um, And so when all these other people show up uh, and she, she walks out onto the beach and she says, a brave new world that has such people in it. Um, and it's supposed to be an irony. Like it's a big laugh line because we know that these are all the worst people. They're traitors and buffoons mm. and and we've seen all their shenanigans. Um, and, um, but on a deeper level, isn't she somehow, uh, really right about that. The way that Piranesi is, um, with the love that he um, has for even in the end, this, um, the person who betrayed him, mm-hmm. um, and I, you know, we we follow him throughout the book as he's learning more and more of of the real truth about his situation. And as you pointed out in a previous episode, Joy, you wonder like we know things that he doesn't, and what's going to happen when he finds out the truth? And is his this you know this way of being um, is it going to abandon him? And and do we want it to? Um, and the fact is even. He does change, but um, he's still he's still sort of primarily Piranesi, um mm-hmm. in the way he views these things. Um, and there's just something so so elevating about that that you it makes you wonder if he is the possessor of the real truth about mm-hmm. them after all.
0: Yeah, I think that's really the challenge at the heart of this book is um, I read an interview with, with uh, Susanna Clark, where she talked about how she wanted to write an anti-horror novel. She wanted to write a novel where, you know, a horror novel is something where at the heart of it is this kind of pulsating, disgusting, dark secret. And in a way, we have that experience in this week with with Piranesi, that um, you come to the heart of it and you realize that terrible crimes have been committed and there's this kind of darkness in his world, that there's a snake in the garden. Um, But at the same time... Piranesi, even after experiencing all of this grief and sadness, still, as you said, treats even the other as fundamentally good, that even after his death, he sees his sins, his brokenness as an aberration, Um, that he believes that there's kind of this anti-horror sense to it, that at the heart, even of all this brokenness and sadness is is goodness and that, that there's a goodness that's more fundamental than the evil and the and the turning away um, that he's experienced. And and that's kind of uh, what we're left to wonder and, and to think that maybe, like you said, maybe Piranesi knows something that we don't know. And maybe what he knows is that the beauty of the house really is immeasurable and it's kindness infinite. And something else I wanted to quickly back to is that the whole book opens with an experience where he almost drowns. It opens with, with rushing tides in a way that's very similar to uh, this experience. And he concludes that scene um, when he's saved by the statues by saying the beauty of the house is immeasurable and it's kindness infinite. And in a funny way, I feel like that opening segment sets up this, this, challenge to us is the beauty of the house really immeasurable is its kindness infinite that this scene and this this revelation kind of is
1: the fundamental challenge to
0: now oh sounds like somebody's going to say something
1: (laughs) (laughs) well you asked you know does piranesi know something we don't when he treats the other with such compassion and such confidence that there is something good in him and that's more core to who he is than what's wrong Mm -hmm. with him and you know i think. Piranesi knows something that he tells us, which is, you know, recall Mm -hmm. that before the flood he spends quite some time fantasizing about killing the other. (laughs) And I don't think that's all Matthew Rose Sorensen coming to the Mm. surface. You know, I think Piranesi categorizes that as himself since he suddenly has learned how he himself has been condescended to, mistreated, lied to. When he talks about what belongs to Sorensen, he talks about just an inarticulate grief and anguish, but his anger he talks about as his. And he says Mm -hmm. that after going through this, he almost loses himself in anger, and it's as exhausting as if he really had committed murder. Mm -hmm. So I I think Piranesi feels very strongly, that sense that when we, you know, look on another with lust, we commit adultery in our heart. When we look with anger, we do commit murder to an extent, and he Mm -hmm. doesn't see as big a gulf between himself as the other as we might. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Uh, and and that parallel to Jesus' words about, you know, if you look on someone's last, I, that stuck out to me as well. And I, I think the thing that struck me with that anger that he experiences, uh, you know, psychologists always say that anger is a secondary emotion. Um, anger is what we feel usually when we are either afraid or deeply sad. And that is what he's thrown into. He is both deeply sad because his only friend is in fact his only enemy, but also deeply afraid. And so in a way that anger kind of spins itself out. It's the emotion that does something that protects us, that that gets up to the challenge. And I love that line where he says, anger made me. What is it he says? Anger made me. I wrote it down because I thought it was interesting. Made me resourceful. Um, but then once the anger is spent, he comes back to that place of fundamentally believing in the goodness not, not in the goodness in the sense that the other is morally good, but in the sense that he is valuable, that he should be good, even when he has chosen not to be.
2: Now, I that's think I think my take on it. that I mean, I don't... The other, like, mm-hmm. he has no redeeming qualities at all. No. We can see he doesn't even have, like, the genius and penetrating insight of the really evil character in this book. He's just insensate. Yeah. Um, we don't see any evidence that he would have uh, changed or been redeemed if he had lived... But it says everything about Piranesi that he's still, um, you know, he starts the chapter with saying he is not my friend, he is my enemy, and, and imagining all these horrible ways he's going to kill him. When it comes to the point, he's actually trying to save him, um, and he his little eulogy for him is that um, he's my only friend, my only enemy, and he's both those things. He, like, now he doesn't switch, he doesn't flip the script, he just now allows for both those things to exist in his heart. And he, um, he takes care of him as, as part of the human community, part of mm. this precious human community that he's been so interested, um, to learn more about, uh, mm. this whole time. Um, and it's, I mean, that's one of the ironies of his world is that he only is the way he is. And and Miranda only is the way she is because, there's almost no one there. And when you mm. get into human society, um, it, it, you know, it really changes who you are as, as Raphael is saying, and as, as he comes to understand and talking with her. Um, yeah. but that doesn't, that doesn't take away the loneliness or the, you know, the impulse to, um, to get back to society, um, which is, uh, a real and important thing, even given, um, that fallenness
0: absolutely and that i think segues us very nicely into talking a bit about 16 because she is this entryway into communion with another individual and it's the first individual that is that tells him the truth that calls him by his real name that isn't trying to manipulate or confuse him also i should say quickly i don't think i said this on the podcast yet but there's of course that connection with the other being Ketterly, like the experimenting magician in The Magician's Nephew, um, who is kind of, he's kind of just stupid. He's stupidly evil. Um, he, and in the end, he has his own demise. But then Sixteen, who we find out is called Sarah Raphael, and I think it's really significant that her name means God has healed. That's what Raphael means. And um, I think that she becomes this, this conduit and this 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 person beckoning him into healing. Um, But she also is this person who's beckoning him into community. And uh, at the beginning of this book series, I talked with Malcolm Guide about how a lot of this is, of course, based on Barfield's ideas of original participation. But for Barfield, the goal wasn't to get back just to being, you know, pre-modern men. Um, We're past that and we can never, we can never get back to that Eden. He said, "What we needed was to bring bring ourselves back to a place where we were actually able to individuate, to know who we are, um, but then be able to share in communion with other people." And that's what I think is kind of this movement towards that he's beginning to experience is the loss of innocence, but the ability to maintain a belief in goodness and the move towards relationship with someone else. And that Raphael becomes kind of this this conduit of um, of healing. What do you all make of Raphael? I just think she's the bomb (laughs) well
2: i didn't know that about the meaning of her name i think that's beautiful but i did notice that uh, she's named for an angel um Mm. you know when we first meet piranesi he's um remembering what we would um think of as angels people who can fly uh, and wondering where they all went um and i think it it fits with the theme of nothing really ever disappearing from the world just you know, changing what it's for might be that in Mm. every other way, but having wings, um, Mm. she is that angel who comes flying in to save him. Um, And Mm. she's an angel of justice and mercy.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful. And also it kind of relates back to that um, idea of that. He, when he has the vision of the albatross, that he is the, he's going to be the angel, but maybe Raphael is actually the one who comes to him as an angel.
1: Well, it's also interesting. So I'm reading the book of Tobit right now in my Bible in a Year uh, schedule, and that's the book where Raphael appears, but Mm. appears under a hidden aspect. The people who are being watched by Raphael don't know that initially. And in the reading I just did the other night, there's a moment where the dad is sending his son off in the company of Raphael, though he doesn't know him as such, and says to his wife not to worry, for a good angel goes with his son. And Mm. he doesn't mean Raphael, because he doesn't know that particularly. He thinks he's a hired man, but he has a Mm. faith in God and he's right. He just doesn't know the form that protection takes. And again, Mm. I think that speaks to the relationship Piranesi has with the house, even though not initially with 16, when he suspects 16 of being his enemy, that Piranesi Mm. has a real expectation that the house is kind and provides for him. And Raphael is in some ways another manifestation of that provision, though like the biblical Raphael, hidden from him initially.
0: Mm. I love that. And also, I think the thing that's interesting to me about about 16, about Raphael, is that she in many ways relates to the house in the same way as Piranesi. I think up to this point, you can kind of have a sense of, well, maybe he's just having an elaborate um, hallucination and the other and the prophet are just kind of Humoring him, but we know that that can't be quite the case because she, even though she has all, it's what you talked about earlier, Leah. Even though she has all these kind of um, feelings of of sadness and knowing the real world, knowing there's crimes in there, she also experiences the house in a similarly porous. She's kind of open to Piranesi's way of seeing the world, and I think that at the heart of that's It's because she's this deeply empathetic person. She's able to enter into the experience of other people and not to kind of try to, um, change or argue, but just kind of take them at face value with this kind of unshockable and tender love. Um, yeah. And I just, I admire her so much. I want to be like her. I want to be someone who can, who can both respond to the brokenness of the world, but also just to people in life with that, with that tenderness and that kindness. She is a manifestation of the kindness of the house, I think.
1: Well, I think that that kind of points to her reception of it, points to one of my favorite lines in this chapter, which is shortly after they've both been disturbed by the imperfections of this world, uh, that they both feel sad and helpless contemplating the reasons the people of the alcove are dead. But then Mm. it says, we continued on our way, stopping often to admire a particularly striking statue. Our hearts grew lighter again, and when we reached the coral halls, we refreshed ourselves with looking at their wonders. Mm. And I think that speaks to how she is the person she is, someone who can respond to the house, that we have to, to be prepared, refresh ourselves with wonders, mm. and be prepared to see them as wondrous. Mm.
0: Absolutely. And it reminds me of, um, a few chapters ago when he has this, when he starts to realize that he thinks he's mad, he goes and he sits in the, in the statues and he says, um, that he basks in their beauty. And then he says, I was, I was calm then and better able to handle the world. And there's this sense that sh- that she gets to share with him in, in centering in beauty. And I love it too. It reminds me very much. It feels like it's a parallel with Genesis when, when, uh, when God says it's not good for man to be alone. And then of course, there's not really this, we don't have this fleshed out, but there's this sense of Adam receiving uh, communion, receiving a partner. And then what must it have been like? And there's kind of that sense of her getting him finally and having not been good for him to be alone for so long. And then having this person with whom he can sh- enjoy the beauties of the house and share in it. And he's longed to do that for so long. Um, So what are your all's thoughts on the house itself right now? I know that we still have some people who think that it's an elaborate um, uh, hallucination. To me, it seems clear that because she, because Raphael is here and she's taking pictures and she talks about how she thought it would be something other than what it was, but it it is in fact a place. It seems clear to me that it is a real place. What do you all think?
1: Uh, Definitely the house is a real place. Uh, You know, it's a real place people's independent views of it and not just him and um 16 mm-hmm. together but ultimately you know in the in the end of the book we see him share reminiscence with, of the house with someone else they match they experience the same thing at different times and their views of it match it's mm-hmm. a real thing in the winter's tale Polina is a real witch and Hermione is literally a statue uh, sometimes mm-hmm. things are just magical
0: it's true do you I, I think so. Also, I, I feel like it would take radical. It would take a lot more faith to try to work this out as being a hallucination than than just taking it as a real place. My my crazy um, conspiracy theory is to me it seems like it's a a wood between the worlds kind of thing, right? Um, I think Ketterly is a reference to that. I think the fact that it's a place that you forget that it has a sense of it not being a real world, and Piranesi gets really kind of huffy about this, and he's like. Because she says it's um, 16th It's a place of pure representation. It's kind of like a platonic form world. Um, but I have a crazy theory. Now, Leah, you're the only one who has read John and Strange, Mr. Norrell. Do you remember at the Hall of Mirrors? Uh,
1: yes, I'm ready to hear you out here.
0: Okay, I think... I have a slight theory that it might be might have something to do with the Hall of Mirrors. That's as that's as fleshed out as this theory is. Um, but to me, it seems to have similar qualities, the ability to get lost in it, uh, the ability to lose memory. Um, and it has that sense of, of a, a place that you pass through to get to other places um, and all those references to. Um, so in my mind, it's a crazy conspiracy theory, but I, I, I imagine these worlds as being connected.
1: I, I don't root for it just because I think there's more than one rich and interesting place in the world.
0: Of course. But I, I do think it's a possibility. I, I don't need it to be the case. It just seems like there's a lot of, um, of uh, correlations between the two. So maybe you'll have to read it at some point, Catherine, and then pitch oh, it. Oh,
2: I did. I have now read that. Oh, you did? As well.
0: You've, um, you've now read it as well.
2: Good. Yes. <laughs> yes, I did. And seen the BBC miniseries. Um, I still haven't seen that actually. Well, um, it's, it's wonderful, but, uh, no, I definitely agree. Um, this is a real place. It's a liminal place. Like I was saying, it's where you go, uh, but you're not meant to stay forever. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, you know, it could impart healing, uh, in some way, Mm -hmm. um, or other things, but, um, it's actually not good. You have to go back to your life, um, if you can,
0: yeah. I wonder if that connects to, to the, um, so Barfield was a, and I can never say this word totally correctly, but an anthro, anthrosophist. Um, and they had this idea that there was, an a, a material, a actual place that was immaterial, a spiritual realm that was immaterial. And you could get there if you accessed it through your mind, um, which kind of seems similar in some ways to this, obviously. And there's lots of nods to Barfield. But it seems to me that in the same way that uh, you know uh, this is this is really galaxy brained but um, in the same way that Aquinas says the the soul is the form of the body meaning that the body is kind of the manifestation of what the soul is and that in some ways the reason we need to be resurrected for Aquinas is because our our the form of our body the soul must take shape and I think that's kind of that since that it's a the house is a passing through place. It's the form into which other worlds pass. And so you are meant to exit back out of it and into the world itself. So so what do you think, how do you think Piranesi is going to, to handle the new world? How do you think he will uh, be able to hold this tension of still knowing the world to be a beautiful place because he still treats it that way, but also... Entering into the place. I love when he says, um, are there more than 70 people in the world? Having tried to guess, you know, an outrageous number. How do you think Piranesi is going to handle entering back into the real world?
1: I think one of the most challenging parts is how to give appropriate reverence to the goodness of the being of different people when there are more than 70 people in the world. <laughs> you know, what does appropriate reference to the goodness of creation look like when you have glancing contact with someone? That seems like one of the hardest things for for Peronese himself, more than just navigating other people's expectations of him and his own history. It's his longing to serve what is beautiful and his expansive eye for what is beautiful in a world that, you know, has a, a throwaway culture, but more than that, has so much in it, you know. I have a toddler, right? And she has a more pyrenees like attitude, which is the walk from the car to the house can take a very long time because there are sticks and rocks that you have to eat. Uh, So I feel like he's got some of that toddler spirit that really giving the world due attention takes a long time.
0: Yeah, yeah. And to say, will he still be able to retain that innocence and that loveliness in, in the big wide world? How about you, what, you, Catherine? What do you, how do you think he's going to handle the new world?
2: Well, I am. Um, one of the parts of this chapter um, that's actually really poignant to me is when Raphael is beginning to let him in on um, how bad things can really get, and he's, you know, somewhat dismayed to, you know, find out this dark interpretation, even of the the bones in his own hall that he's held so reverently, and to, you know, realize how, the way that she sees them and he's sitting there thinking somebody that I can admire so much, uh, is still darkening, uh, my perception of Mm. reality. Um, and it's, I mean, it's this, this, uh, this, you know, poignant irony of the thing that he desperately wants and needs, which is to go back into community, um, is going to have this effect inevitably because, um, that's what human beings are there's you know there's essentially um fallen nature that will come um that will come up again and again and again um you can't wipe it out once and for all you can't control for it um it's going to be there and so uh what do you do about that um instead and i think that his attitude toward the other points the way to that it's you don't um you know it First, he, you know, one thing you could do is you can uh, forget and then it doesn't matter to you. And this is how he's existed up until mm-hmm. this point. But deep down, um, it, it's still real and, and it still does matter. Um, or you can um, you can pursue justice like uh, Raphael has done. And, and that's an important element of it. But you can also offer forgiveness to people. Um, there's this other part of the Tempest. Um My favorite part is, it's right at the beginning of the last act. It's a conversation between, um, Ariel has been uh, flying all around and doing errands for Prospero. Um, and he comes to report back on what he's done. And he has all these, um, uh, traders from off the boat, uh, tied up in a tree. Um, and he starts to describe them to Prospero. And then a very strange thing happens to them. He's him. He's sort of overcome with this, sensation of pity and tenderness that he doesn't um quite know what to do with because uh, it's not natural to him as a spirit he says um a full of sorrow and dismay but chiefly him that you termed sir the good old lord gonzalo his tears run down his beard like winter's drops from eaves of reeds your charm so strongly works him that if you now beheld them your affections would become tender prospero says mm-hmm. "Dost thou think so spirit And he says, mine would, sir, were I human. Um, And Prospero agrees and mine shall. And it's this, to me, it's this amazing moment because he's essentially saying to Prospero, it's not in my capacity as this spirit uh, to offer forgiveness, but it is in yours um, as a human, as if forgiveness is an essentially Um, human quality that that somebody can offer. Mm -hmm. So even as people are essentially fallen, they also have this corresponding um, higher capacity to love and forgive each other. And and that's exactly what Prospero then does. Um, It's interesting because, you know, usually there's this little, you know, to forgive, to err as human, to forgive divine. But this um, almost suggests the opposite. He's prompted by a spirit, but it's, you know, it has to come out of his own heart. And and in some sense this turns out to have been his plan all along. Mm-hmm. Um and that's what keeps life um cohesive when you can love and, and forgive others even when they'll they'll fail you. Um mm-hmm. and um I think uh and has shown that he's prepared to do that.
0: Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. And I really appreciate you drawing out these, um, these kind of similarities between the Tempest and Pyrenees. I think that that seems convincing to me. And um, I, I think that what we're seeing happen in this chapter is throughout the whole book, we've had this sense of, you know, do we know things Pyrenees doesn't know? Once he knows, is he going to be able to forgive and be happy again? And in this chapter he very kind of gradually uh, but bravely chooses to walk back into the real world. He chooses not to stay in the loneliness of the house. He chooses not to stay. He chooses to make himself see the reality of brokenness. But then he also the last thing he does before he steps into this world is that he puts the shells back into his hair. This is one of the most moving points to me of the chapter it's this kind of, cause you know, that he took them out when he was hiding from 16 and it's a very kind of Genesis three. I was hiding from you in the garden, but in this, in this scene, when he has, you know, had this generous act of forgiveness to the other, when he has talked and shown um, Raphael the whole house and he's preparing to go back into the real world of police cars and Manchester and, and of, of a life that's, tainted, but real and has the capacity for connection. And the thing that he does to to make himself ready for that is to ornament himself and to live fully into, I think, what is kind of this third identity um, that takes shape in the last. You know, we've known Piranesi. That was the person who forgot. That was this kind of manifestation of trauma. Um, and it was a beautiful manifestation of trauma, but it was still a manifestation uh, that made him forget everything that bad that it happened to him. And then we have Matthew Rose Sorensen, And now we have this new person who knows what happened to him, knows all the brokenness, and yet still has this beautiful willingness to forgive, to believe in goodness at the heart of reality. And when 16 asks him, well, what shall I call you if you're not Matthew Rose Sorensen, and you're not Parnesi, who are you? And he answers, I'm the beloved child of the house. And I think that's this kind of sustaining identity that enables him to walk back into the world. But where, but how shall Paranasi be? Well, we're getting near the end. Are there any kind of final thoughts you both would want to share before we, before we end the podcast?
2: Yes. Um, So I would go back with what I was just saying um, Mm -hmm. to the character of the wave, you know, the one Mm -hmm. big, wipe out um that you either will or won't uh restore the righteousness of the world um and it corrects for one thing but you can't do that every time you can't always um bring so much righteous energy and i take his little small smaller acts of love and forgiveness and healing to be like um the tides that are always coming in and out They're you know the smaller version of that great force um you know, he says um, long before in an early chapter, he he mentions even like the um, the bird droppings that end up on the statues and how the other is disgusted by them. But he sees them as um, a sign of life, which is a beautiful thing, like in themselves, in themselves, they're bad. But um, what they point to is beautiful. And, and I would see like, you know, the sin and brokenness of the world is um almost that same thing. It's a, it's a byproduct of a world that has humans in it, um, which is ultimately a good thing. And, but you need something to, you know, keep on not once, but like all the time, wash those things away and, and keep on cleaning. And so that's what you have with the bird droppings and the, the bodies that decay and turn into these shining bones, like, and, you know, in a very gentle uh, and natural way, the tides Um, are always bringing healing to the decay of the world. Mm,
0: That's
1: beautiful.
0: How about you, Leah? Any closing thoughts?
1: You know, I just, I love this book. And there are sometimes books where I read them kind of regardless of what the overall plot is. And I feel ill-tempered while I'm reading them because... Mm you know, there's a tension to the book that I don't like, or there's an unpleasantness to the characters such that being around them, you know, makes me a little upset, or I feel like their short-temperedness carries with me out of the book. And reading Mm -hmm. Piranesi made me feel like it was easier to be a good person while reading it, and that's my favorite thing about the book.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's such a beautiful reflection, and I think that I feel the same way, and I think part of it is that the reason we're so invested in Piranesi is because we want to be good, we want to be loving, but we feel we can feel disoriented, we can feel disappointed and betrayed. And so as we're watching him journey towards forgiveness, I think there's a part of us that wonders, can I also live in the world and be a beloved child of the house? Can I still forgive? Can the wave still um, be the sublime that both protects me and washes me clean? And, um, and I agree that you come away with a feeling of cleanness and hopefulness. And I think that the last chapter will really kind of drive home some of these themes and will once and for all answer this question of, will Paranese be able to still be a beloved child at the house, uh, once he's back in the real world. Well, thank you both so much for joining me on this podcast. It's so fun to discuss these things. And, um, and I'm so thankful that you were there to help me think through all these things when I was writing the that very first essay Katrin it's been so much fun to talk to both of you well thank
2: you joy it really is the gift that keeps on giving
1: (laughs) it's a real pleasure and I think it's always good to make more space to be refreshed by wonder you know to log off twitter and find a good book and give it to your brother you know biological or otherwise and then settle down to talk
0: Yes. Yes. If you get nothing else from this episode, I think it is that you must go give, um, your brothers, uh, whomsoever they may be a copy of, of Paranasi. Thank you guys both so much for listening and everyone. I'll, um, I hope you'll tune in next week for our final episode of Reading with Joy.